Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today we've got our resident grazing expert and SFA's senior technical advisor, Kent Solberg, on to discuss this important issue relevant to this time of year, and that topic is managing grazing in the spring. Kent, welcome back to the Dirt Rich Podcast. Hey, Jared, great to be back. Yeah, so so we've had you on the podcast a few times, so I think we don't need to get in too much into to introductions today, but I'm, I'm really excited to get your perspective on this topic, especially since it's the topic that a lot of us are facing right now, and that's kind of this spring flush and this management of this grass and the spring flush. And maybe we'll start off with the, the very first piece of that is figuring out when is even the right time to turn cows out, because it can be awfully tempting when we start seeing it green up in the spring mm. to just turn cows out, but maybe that's maybe not the best time <laughs> to just turn cows out when we see green. Yeah, great question. And it is really one of the million dollar questions because what we, our decisions now are basically setting us up for the rest of the grazing season. And mm, sure. the temptation is always when hay prices are high and feed stores are running low and and the cows are kind of looking for that first blade of green grass. We want to turn them out. And yet sometimes that's one of the worst things we can do. This this spring, as we all know, has been a real teaser. You know, we had some really nice weather and then it got cold again. And then we had some nice weather and then it got cold again. And, and uh, then it got dry for a lot of us. And so what to do, what to do. Some of the old school of thought was, you know, get them out and get over everything fast. And I, I used to subscribe to that myself. I no longer do. And I think there's some differentiations we can make that I think help producers on making some decisions. First of all, in a year like this, where we had a lot of, a lot of Minnesota had temperatures down into the 20s, um, even through April, the grass just was not coming, even though we had some beautiful days and some rain in a lot of places of the state, it was just cold and it was just sort of sitting there waiting for weather. And, and the temptation is, oh, it's an early spring, you know, because the snow has gone in March and, oh, we can get going early. And yet mm-hmm. it, looking back, you know, in hindsight, it's always 2020 and grazing like everything else. But looking back, it's like, wow, um, I'm, I'm glad, you know, we haven't started yet because I think we would have been back to feeding stored forage at one point in time. But the old school of thought was get across everything fast. And the idea of that was um, that a lot of our plat pastures were limited in diversity. We wanted to avoid those early seed heads, you know, on the brome, on the fescue, and the quack, on the orchard grass. And we wanted to keep it in that vegetative state. And what we're finding is that if we have good diversity in our pastures, particularly if we're at, we've got access to some native range, if it's not just a two species mix that's planted, um, we don't have to be as panicky about that as we once were, I think. Um, there's a lot of paddocks in the last few years I haven't even gotten into until the end of July, early April for the first time for the entire year. And the animals do fine. You know, we're not looking to take everything. We want to keep that ground covered. We want to leave leaves. Uh, we want to make sure that photosynthetic capability is there. We want to protect that root system. And so we're only looking, especially if we want animal performance, to take, you know, 30 to 50% of what's out there. Now, maybe we've got a site we want to renovate and we want to hit it harder in the spring. That's fine. That's a different goal. We can adjust our grazing intensity accordingly. But if we're only taking 30 to 50% of what's out there because we want some performance and we've got some diversity out there, 
I think if we're just starting in a different paddock every year and working our way across in the long term, I think we're going to see much better results. We're going to be better, better forage production. It's really hard to get over everything and just top it uh, mm-hmm. once uh, in that spring. And the the seed head thing, is it as bad as we think it is? Do we need to stay on top of it? If all we've got planted out there, I'm just going to pick on orchard grass mm-hmm. today just, just for something to pick on. Sure. But if, if we're just, if all we have out there is orchard grass, yeah, that's a lot more important because once it goes reproductive, you know, nutrition and palatability completely drop off the charts on that. But if we've got diversity out there, um, it's it's not as big of a deal. In fact, I used to clip and do all that stuff. And then I found I was just spinning my wheels trying to do those things. And I found by working to build diversity in my pasture, just starting in a different paddock, understanding that I'm only taking, you know, a third to 50% of what's out there to protect the regrowth out there. It's just not as big of a dish issue anymore. Excuse me. I know guys who are some of their paddocks, they're not even getting into until the middle to the end of August, the first time over. They're not doing it in the same order every year, but they've got the diversity. The animals are finding what they what they need and they can be just fine. If we have low diversity pastures, maybe it's something we can work on. There are strategies to do that. Um, and that may be another podcast. Uh, we can work on that. But, uh, um, you know, then we need to pay attention to a little of that. But very rarely do we find one person who only has one thing. A, a, a lot of producers actually have more diversity out there than they think. Sure. Um, if you just start looking around, we're sort of keyed in on certain forage species because that's the bulk of what they eat and the bulk of what they want, mm-hmm. uh, or the animals want, but it's, it's that diversity. We're learning more and more through um, veterinary science, through other forage science, even through, wildlife ecology, that diversity is maintaining this ruminant animal health when they're out there. And that's so important. And that's what we want to strive for. So um, look at what you got, look at what you need. You, you know, again, all the tools are still in the toolbox. If you got a clip, you got a clip. And sometimes there's value in that, you know, whether you've got an invasive plant problem or something, or you want to set the willows back or the aspen back or whatever, but look at all your tools, look at all your options. What are your goals for that paddock? And what are you going to need to move forward with it? So if I'm hearing you right, then kind of this, this mindset or maybe the panic of like, we got to get out there before oh, it yeah. all goes to, you know, before it all loses quality, we don't have to, we don't have to worry as much about that. I used to lose a lot of sleep over that and made sure I had equipment to clip all hooked up and ready to go mm-hmm. and fuel in the tractor and oh good grief, it's going to get away from me. And I just, that was just a lot of getting wrapped around the axle. I found sure. out I didn't need to do. And, and there's a lot of other um, preeminent grazers across the country now who are kind of seeing and showing and doing the same thing. And so some of that came out of, uh, you know, early on back in the nineties, eighties and nineties, when we, we adopted that New Zealand model and that New Zealand model was built around perennial ryegrass and it was a monoculture and mm. we're finding there are issues and challenges uh, with monocultures, and this is one of them. And so when we build diversity in these stands and when we have diversity in these stands, it's less of an issue. Mm-hmm. So the next question is, so when do I start? You know, yeah. when do I begin? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and if, you know, it depends on what your goals for that paddock are. Um, if, if it's something you want to set back, if it's something you want to do something different with, 
pound pound it down in the spring. Yeah. Go if for you it. See Don't it do green, everything. Yeah, you can go as soon as it gets green. You can go it, as soon as it gets decision. green. Yep. You may need to supplemental feed. Mm-hmm. You know, the challenge, one of the challenges with starting when the grass is in such a vegetative state is there's just too much protein yeah. in that grass. And there it's candy and they got the squirts and their body condition can drop on them. And we can be setting the stage for um, problems like pink eye and hoof rot uh, later on in the season because of that. And so um, we want to make sure they're still getting a balanced ration. We don't want everything just shooting through them. So we've got to be a little careful there. And can you talk, because actually I heard that that topic on, the, on how the early spring grazing can affect pink eye and things later mm-hmm. on this past summer at the Soil Health Academy from Alan Williams. And that was one mm-hmm. of the first times I'd heard that. And I think it's you do a great job of coming up with the topics before I can ask them. But that was one of the things <laughs> I, want, I wanted to ask you. So while you mentioned it, um, can you talk a little bit about that a, a little more in depth and how grazing early on without, you know, maybe not getting at the proper balance nutri- or nutritional balance there can affect them later down uh, in the year and what we can do to maybe work with that or to solve that. Yeah. So when we don't have the right balance of protein and energy, we're stressing them physiologically. They're pulling energy off their back basically um, to try and, and maintain their, just the physiological processes in their body. That's creating a stress factor. And when we create that stress factor early, um, it takes time to recover and it's opening up vulnerability to other things. And what are the two things they're vulnerable to in early to midsummer in Minnesota? It's hoof, hoof rot and pink eye, depending on, you know, other conditions. Yes, the fly and stuff still, still the vector, you know, on the pink eye, but the fly is always going to be there. But if the body is in good enough condition physiologically, if we're not stressing them out, their ability to ward that off is far better And we've noticed that on our animals and working with other animals, that if we just wait a little longer until that plant is more in that mid-maturity stage when we start grazing, or there's enough residue left over from last year, or if we're feeding some supplement in the form of high-quality dry grass hay, and they can balance their rumen out, we can watch this just based on manure consistency, those physiological problems that come along mid-summer tend to be far, far less. So a lot of times we can be our own worst enemy on some of this stuff. And, and if, if we wait uh, until that grass meets mid-maturity stage before we start grazing and work through it, usually we're okay. You know, there are some grazers that will just not graze a portion of their pastures in late summer, the fall before, the, uh, the, the year before, excuse me, um, so that they've got some residue out there so that when that cow's taking that bite, of that new vegetative growth, she's picking up some of that old dry stuff from last year too, uh, at the same time. So, and, and again, the diversity is key also, and plant diversity is key. So these things can all help, you know, thinking ahead, thinking this through, how do we prevent these problems? What causes these problems? How do we prevent these problems? How are we setting ourselves up for our pastures, not only now, but in the future? including years down the road. And so um, that's important. If it's dry in the spring, and and most of us have been dry this spring and dry last spring and dry this spring, this is our third kind of dry spring in a row here. And and I I think it does hurt forage production, but we've got to protect what we have because it can flip and turn around and get hot on us. And I'll talk about that in a minute with the value of shade uh, out there. But waiting until, especially if it's dry, if we wait until that third leaf stage um, on a lot of our cool season grasses, the fescues, the bromes, the quacks, 
things like that. When they hit that third leaf stage, now we can protect leaf material. We can leave leaves for photosynthesis. We can protect the growth buds at the crown of the, you know, at the lower levels of the stem. We can protect that root system. We can keep that ground shaded and protect moisture in there uh, and reduce evaporation, soil evaporation uh, on that site. And we're going to get a much, much more balanced ration. So if we've got a place to put them early on, that's got some residue left over from last year that they can mix with that, buy us some time um, until the other stuff pops and then get out there about that third leaf stage uh, the first time over. We're going to, I think we're going to find, we're going to set ourselves up for better forage production into late summer and into the fall. And we just, we see that on our own farm and we see that with other farms we work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate you talking a little bit on that. I kind of got you off track and, and with, with that question, but uh, you, you came back to the topic again of getting started kind of at the right time and, you know, to, to set yourself set yourself up for a good productive grass season. What are some of the negatives that you can see if you start grazing too soon? If you, you know, I'm a, I love doing numbers. I've got, my wife would probably tell you, I, I annoy the Annoyer just a ton with all the Excel spreadsheets I've got of the different things and stuff. And so, you know, when I start looking at all the different winter feed options and see how expensive it is, it's really tempting to turn them out on grass as soon as you can. It, it really is. It really is. And, and the numbers kind of indicate that maybe we should in the short term. But when we start looking at what's going to come, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, four mm-hmm. months from now, mm-hmm. we can shoot ourselves in the foot because yeah. we need to set the stage for the rest of the growing season. And if we're if we're hitting stuff too short, or for, well, the other issue is if we're grazing stuff too short now, or we're suppressing that plant, what's going to survive? It's the plants that are low growing and could take advantage of any moisture that comes along. And what plant is that in a pasture situation? It's Kentucky bluegrass. Mm-hmm. We don't get a lot of tonnage off Kentucky bluegrass. One to two tons an acre at mm-hmm. best. You know, in a good year, we don't want that. We want to be in that four, five, six you know, tons per acre per year of total above ground biomass being produced out there. The Kentucky bluegrass, we can we could set the stage by hitting it too hard too early to create conditions where that Kentucky bluegrass cannot start out competing some of those other plants. And so we want to be careful there from a long-term standpoint. Otherwise, we're going to be spending some money on some restoration mm-hmm. at some point mm-hmm. in the future. It's a high probability. Um, it's, it's a tough thing to deal with. The other thing is, is if we flip from, you know, being cool and dry to being hot and dry, and we're not keeping that ground shaded, um, it's a challenge, you know, it's, it's going to be tough to maintain what little moisture we have. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, The last few years we've been running around with, uh, uh, the infrared thermometer that everybody, you know, going into some places got poked in the forehead with, you know, Mm -hmm. to see if you've got a fever or not. We've all become familiar with, with the COVID thing. For sure. You know, we ran Alan Williams and I ran around last summer with one of those in a lot of different fields. And just one example, we were out on an August day. It was 89 degrees. It was about noon. And uh, there was multiple different management scenarios all within a few feet of each other. There was a cover crop that was in a, a bit of a swale, had a little better soil, a little better moisture. It was about knee high. It was a complex cover crop blend about a month old. But then there was a knoll you know, maybe 50 yards uh, from that. And it had been dry, it had been hot and those covers were struggling and they were sparse and thin. There was a lot of bare soil there. And then right next to that, there was a road ditch that had been mown 
um, very short, you know, two inches, about two inches was the grass height there. But then there was a part of that road ditch um, that came up to a utility pole where one of those support cables comes down and they had to go around mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That grass, you know, was was between knee high and waist high sure. uh, there. And so, and then there was an asphalt road there. And so Alan was running around, you know, with his infrared thermometer and he went in, uh, we knew it was 89 degrees, okay, in the air temperature. And he went in the cover crop and uh, the bare soil, the surface soil temperature in the knee high cover crop was 80 degrees. It was nine degrees cooler than the air temperature. Mm-hmm. The he went Then he went in the tall grass that was between knee and waist high. That was 75 degrees of surface soil temperature. Mm-hmm. And then he went into the, the sparse cover crop up on the knoll. It was 118 was the wow. surface soil temperature. The mown road ditch that was about two inches high was 118 degrees. Mm-hmm. And then, wait for it, get this, the asphalt temperature was 117. Wow. Wow. 117. This was all these temperatures were taken in a few minutes. And we know that at 70 degrees, 100% of the moisture in the ground is available for not only plant production, that's important, but also for those soil microbes, because a lot of these soil microbes are subaquatic organisms. They scoot around on films of moisture. And that soil microbes are going to be what builds our soil aggregate structure. They're going to help us cycle nutrients. When we build soil aggregate structure, we build water holding capacity. There also, the ability to capture and store water, which we need. And if we get into a drought situation, that becomes so important. But at 100 degrees, 85% of that moisture is gone. It's Mm -hmm. being lost to evaporation. So in just that 30-degree temperature change, there's a huge change. And just on that one day, we saw sites that, yeah, we were losing a little moisture, but it wasn't, you know, at a critical stage at other places. It was just going, going, mm-hmm. going on up into the atmosphere through evaporation. So keeping that shaded is very critical. And it's going to, how we manage early in the spring is going to set the stage for the rest of the year. In fact, if we really look at it, if we're doing a good job with adaptive grazing, we're leaving enough residue out there. We got animals on these sites for short amounts of time. We start reducing as a drought management strategy, instead of taking 50%, maybe we're only taking 30% to provide that shade out there. That can be part of our drought mediation plan Mm -hmm. while keeping animal performance going up there. So we're conserving that soil moisture. You know, more of the farmers that you and I work with that are doing these practices and keeping that ground covered, we're finding, I'm working with some, Um, in some pretty drought stricken areas uh, this year. And the ones that have been doing a good job with this have said, I just about have enough conserved moisture in the soil coming into this spring to grow a crop this year. And their neighbors, it's just dust where it's bare. It's just blowing. It's gone. They've got nothing Mm -hmm. to work with. And so, I mean, it can be, it can be the difference between making or breaking our ability to produce forage or even a crop in a given year, just by providing that shade. So think about, you know, that should be, and can be one of our drought mediation strategies is making sure we're leaving enough cover out there to protect what little soil moisture we have. Yeah. And as a grazer, it's kind of like they talk about with planting season, once the first neighbor's planter is rolling, it's like time to get the planter out. doesn't matter what the weather's like. And the same kind of mindset can transition as a grazer when you see the neighbor turn his cows out on pasture. And they may look at you, you know, if you wait another week and feed, you know, feed hay or whatever it is for another week, two weeks, 
they may look at you and think, gosh, gosh, that guy's got so much grass out there. He should be grazing. He's going to end up wasting and it's all going to go mature. But when you're grazing, you know, you know, he, you fed month or a, a week or two longer than he did. And you can graze a month or two longer than he does into the fall because you prepared your soil and you, you, you kind of planned for that. Yep. You know. yep. And, and so you said you're, yeah, you said you're a numbers guy. So let's talk yeah. numbers about protecting that forage resource where you can get that extra four to eight weeks of grazing in the fall. And, and, and I know that's possible. I I've seen out to, out to uh, uh, nine weeks uh, 10 weeks in the fall where where people have done a good job protecting that shade, protecting that forage resource through the years. I've seen neighbor literally right across the fence where one operation's feeding hay middle of August, first week in September, and the other, uh, same stocking rate, same stocking rate on both farms. And one farm's feeding hay the end of August, first of September, even sometimes the middle, early end of July, some years if it gets hot and dry, and the other farms grazing into November into on stockpile grass, not even on covers, uh, even up to Thanksgiving um, sometimes, depending on how the fall goes. Uh, that's huge. You know, 60 days, what's, what's 30 or 60 days of extra grazing in the fall worth mm -hmm. if you're willing to hold off another week to two weeks in the spring? Yeah. I think that's a pretty good economic trade-off. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those are like you talked about earlier, it's thinking in the long term and as opposed to just the short term and, and how we start, you know, viewing our, how, how we view our decisions and their long term impacts is something that we all need to be a little more intentional about. So, no, that's a that's a great point. Um, and and I'm curious, you, you talked a little bit about in the spring flush, the, the mindset always being move across it as fast as possible. Um, as people start turning them out here, you know, right around now, some, you know, we're actually just turning our cows out on grass. We got some rain. We were holding out cause it was so dry and we didn't, we, we had the grass there. We, you know, it was, it's, it was neat and alone just to see our grass versus some of the other producers around us who maybe hadn't managed it in the way that we had. So we had grass there, but we still held off knowing that, you know, if we got to it too soon, we might do some damage. But once we were turning out now, um, is there a specific, you know, management change that you would you would manage your grass a little bit differently now here at the end of may early june considering the fact that we get so much more growth in these months you know than we would maybe manage our grass in august or you know late july august early september so again it depends on your context mm -hmm. you know what are you on sand or are you in clay are you sure. dry or are you what's your soil moisture looking like what's your goals for that particular paddock there's a few people who hit something a little, I mean, as long as we don't go below baseline residue height, you can hit a few pastures hard, but they might need, they're probably going to need a longer rest period because, you know, okay. Yeah. So we got rain this week or last week, you know, when's the next time we're going to get rain when none of us know, you know, I don't care. The forecasters do the best job they can, but they're still sort of, you know, shooting in the dark a little bit. We don't know. We don't know if we're going to have temperatures, you know, we kind of have a rough idea, but we're getting to that time of year where we're going to see temperatures routinely in the 80s and possibly in the 90s and heaven forbid the hundreds, mm -hmm. you know, and we just don't know. And so we've got to protect that forage resource. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of grazers are starting to leave taller residue height. I know the standard recommendation is four inches, but the purpose of that is simply to protect the growing points at the base of that plant. That's the primary goal of that. 
a lot of reducers are trying to leave six and sometimes even eight inches of stubble because of the vet, not only the value of shade, but we have to leave leaves in order for photosynthetic activity to recur or occur. Once those plants, once those cool season grasses have gone to seed head in the spring, usually, well, the Kentucky bluegrass already headed out. The June grass is already headed out. Brome, Brome's not far away. In fact, some places in Southern Minnesota, I'm sure it has. I just haven't been down that direction this year, but um, you know, that's on the edge uh, verge of heading out now. We, we still want to be careful. We still want to be careful because we don't know what, the, if it's been a wet spring, Mm-hmm. You can probably get away and you get good soil moisture. You could probably get away with taking stuff down to between four and six inches and be okay. You know, but mm-hmm. again, what, what's your context? What do you got out there for grass? What's your soil type? What's the weather doing? Yeah. You know, what class animals are you feeding? What's their manure looking like? You know, mm-hmm. is the manure good consistency? I mean, sometimes if we're just crapping the top, it's too much protein too. Mm-hmm. So we've got to adjust mm-hmm. Based on all of those factors, we've got to sure. watch all of those things. And it requires us as managers to be boots on the ground. You know, are mm-hmm. they getting that room and fill? What's the manure looking like? What's the impact going on out there? Are we pugging in some areas because it's too wet? Or are we hitting it too hard mm-hmm. on those ridges when it's too dry? You know, what are the what can we adjust? And that's that's the beauty because we've got tools available at our disposal now, polywire step in posts, mm-hmm. you know, that are grandfathers didn't have access to and now it's just using the power of observation i mean almost every producer i know goes out and checks their cattle almost daily you know most of them do they it's like okay if you're out there checking them let's look at a few other things on the way out and on the way back let's make some adjustments when we're out there you know what better way to check your animals than have them walk through a 30-foot opening in the polywire right in front of your eyes mm-hmm. every day and you can check them out. Go look at that manure. What's it doing? You know, what does it look like? It's not going to be consistent across the herd. I've seen, you know, one animal it's they're stacking it up like horse road apples, and another animal it's squirting out the back, you know. But mm-hmm. what on average, what's going on out there? And we're going to need to adjust. Maybe we need to let them take a little more. And how's that going to fit with our plans? How's it going to fit with our goals for that paddock and for animal performance for the year? So there's so many moving parts in this thing that we do have to be adaptive. And that's why we like to call it adaptive grazing these days. Yeah. And and you talked about like class of livestock and things. And so that brings up a challenge that on our farm we're facing right now as we calve, we moved our calving season back to on pasture. So we're calving right now to kind of adapt the the nutrient requirements of the animal to when we have an abundance of high quality feed. But a challenge that we're finding is this moving of cattle with newborn calves, as opposed to maybe a calver in January and February, who's got three month old calves when they're going out on grass and they can, they can, manage those very similar to a cow do you have any tips all the you know you travel all over and work with farmers all over do you do you have any tips or tricks uh, on ways to move and manage cattle across pasture and across grasslands in the spring with newborn calves at side yeah so again we don't have to do the same thing everywhere all the time so think about where you can do these things and move it around from year to year one of the things some people do is is um, not back fence, you know, Mm -hmm. every day. You can, you can give it a little time, you know, Mm -hmm. give them a little time, let them to catch, let them catch up Let those 
you know, mamas with new babies catch up, you know, and, mm-hmm. and by not back fencing, we can do that. You can give bigger paddocks. Maybe you're only going to move every other day or once a day or every three days. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Just do that in a different spot next year. Again, this yes. is adaptive. We want to do things different on different places every year. Yeah, there's one spot that may be really convenient because you can look out the port, you know, this patio door and, yeah. and see everything. Yeah, I totally get that. That's nice. Probably everybody, but, I know like almost everybody I know has got their calving pasture, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, the calving yeah. pasture. And, and, you know, in reality, we should probably be, there should be a different calving pasture. Even, <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, you know, we got to mix these things up or we're going to set the stage where we're going to hurt ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. at some point time it's going to start costing us money and convenience yes it's often king it's what sells you know and so many other products out there but you know we've got a bigger resource out here we're trying to manage and animal performance we're trying to manage and and uh, i think we need to be cognizant of that i think a lot of people even if they subdivided their quote calving pasture and changed what year they did on it it can go a long way Mm -hmm. but um not back fencing bigger paddocks giving the, you know, the new mamas a uh, chance to catch up with the rest of the herd. Um, and, and that's going to require some adaptivity, but again, you know, we've got the tools to do this stuff now. It's just a willingness. Sometimes we just, honestly, sometimes we just do things because that's just how we've done things. And sometimes just, we just got to burn the box and move on. Not think outside mm-hmm. the box, but burn the box and move on. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to watch and see. I mean, I'm looking out the window right now, new baby on the ground this morning, you know, mm-hmm. here and, mm-hmm. you know, by tonight, you could wander over, you know, to the next pasture with mama, not very far, but mm-hmm. if he doesn't, you know, you're going to have to watch those things. You know, if most people are out there every day, you know, they're tagging calves and maybe banded calves and they know who had calves and who's not. And if you, you know, good grief. I think every livestock person I know has got a good set of binoculars, you know, by the patio door too, to look out and check on stuff. And so you can see who's moving and who isn't. And, if they all move, string up the back fence. If they don't move, leave it down. What's it going to take you? 10 more minutes? Oh, good grief. Come on. You know, so, you know, we can do ourselves a lot of favors just by changing some of our management here just a little tiny bit and gain a whole lot in the process. Yeah. So kind of as we start pointing towards wrapping this up, the big thing I'm hearing from you as we often get when we start talking about pastors is not a silver bullet. It's a, it depends. It's a context. It's a, you know, you know, adapt, adaptive. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, being adaptive, making intentional decisions and and recording those observations, you know, and and observing and then, you know, recording it and changing your management up later on and stuff. So as we, you know, and an important topic, you know, or point of just not getting out too soon, but if you do, you know, giving adequate rest, doing something different, but do you have any final words, you know, just on this topic of spring grazing in general, anything that, that comes to mind, um, you, like I say, you do a great job of getting through a lot of the topics that I, I had in mind anyway. So we've covered a lot, but if there's any final thoughts you have on the spring grazing grazing conversation, uh, feel free to share. You know, if, yeah, if there's a silver, if there's one thing I could take people away from, or maybe two, I'll do one or two, just start in a different paddock every spring. Um, that would be the simplest thing. Most people could, it could go a long way um, to helping your management and change things up. And the second is, is, yeah, it's tempting to get out there early and the cows, yeah, I know they're reaching under the fence for every little blade of grass. It's, I totally get that. But the longer we wait, you know, if, if we're getting good moisture, we can start, 
when the average height out there is 10 inches high. It, you know, we've been talking about a lot of a lot about extremes, but you know, on a good spring, we can start maybe at 8, 10, 12 inches high and, and move across pretty fast. Again, we have to be adaptive. But when it's three or four inches out there, we're finding more people are having problems, maybe not this year, but in future years are having problems from starting too early. And we're finding that it's a little bit of waiting. Um, even though other people have theirs out, goes a much longer way to helping the bottom line and to helping our forage production and animal performance throughout the year. Awesome. Well, Kent, thanks so much for your thoughts. As always, we really appreciate them. Um, and we look forward to having you on again soon. Good to be back, Jared. You have a good one. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.